Hi, Ringo. Hi, Joe. Happy, Happy, Happy New Year. Hi, Ringo. Happy New Year. Hello, Harry Krishna. We're on the day shift now. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be that. It's a dynamic kid. How's Judy? Oh, it's fine. Thank you very well. The thing that I feel about the, like the motion of it is uh, very, you know, bandy. Welcome this week's One Day with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. Well, let's see. We are finally to the last week of the Let It Be box set. Yeah, you could call it part of Let It Be, but most of it seems to be about Abbey Road. We'll get into the tracks individually here shortly, but what I will say is my general feeling is this disc really sort of feels like a bootleg to me. Yeah, just bits and pieces and working on songs and... It just happens that they're songs for the next album, for the most part. That's kind of what's interesting about it. actually looked up in the Nagras some of those conversations on disc two appear and I was surprised to find out when when they actually occurred. Surprise. <laughs> exactly. The first conversation the Paul and George and John are talking about, oh, you know, it's like a song and Paul wanted to be one way and we wanted to be another. That was as late as the twenty fifth of January. Right. So you know, finding where it was done and some of the conversation around it, you know, it, it, I think they were coming to grips or at least talking to Paul about, yeah, we get it was, you know, you had this vision in the early, the early stages of this, but it's not that anymore. And that's why you're kind of upset. And so they're really not talking about any one song in particular. We were trying right. to figure out, well, what song are they talking about? No, they're talking about the project as a whole. The co- the whole concept of it. Yeah. And, and then, then the other, the, the real surprising thing to me is John says we're going to do seven songs this Thursday, and then, then they won't have to film, and then we'll do seven more next Thursday. That was on the 28th of January. Right. As in a couple days before the rooftop. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would have fit with Ringo's filming schedule. It wouldn't have. You know, February 1st was, he he had to be off with Peter Sellers. Right. So what do you take from that? That John was just basically talking out his ass. Well, either that or he had just completely forgotten about Ringo's schedule. But I really don't see that as being the case. Right. But I don't hear uh, Ringo in any of these particular conversations, not even kind of fooling around. So, yeah, all the conversations, but at least the ones we're talking about. What does that mean? Put in that context, the fact that, okay, we are two days up against it 
the whole last week, they still don't know what's going on. They still don't know whether this is a TV special or whether they're going to try and do something else with it. I think theatrical film may have been pushed on them, but the rest of that conversation that we don't get on this disc is 10 minutes of Paul talking about uh, blowing up a film from 16 millimeter to 35 millimeter and how crappy it looks. Nobody else wants to go on the stage or do a TV show. You know, that's what it's about. Nobody wants to get out there. And well, if you want to get out there, you'll have to find some other form of getting out there. I suppose that's true, you know. I think so, you know. I'm only going by what's happened. Yeah, yeah. Remember who you are when you're on there singing, wherever you are. When you're singing, you're singing, you know. Just the still photos the other night would make a a UA movie just out of stills of us with soundtrack on it, you know. That late, it was really still in flux. And they were looking to solve what they perceived as problems. You know, what is going to be the end of this film? Are we changing what it is? Is it now a movie? And, and they don't agree. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, despite George's assurances that, that it will all work out, we're fortunate that Let It Be really worked as well as it did. Yeah. And George has the point of view, I think kind of correctly so, that, Whatever it is they end up doing is them doing it. So there doesn't have to be this planning. I mean, some obviously, but he's just like, if we do it, it, we do it. And stop moaning. (laughs) He doesn't really say that, but it's implied. Yeah. You know, I recently uh, saw an interview with Mike Nesmith of the monkeys. And he was talking about his uh, time with Lennon. And he said, the thing that really struck him was that when he met the other Beatles, they didn't appreciate that whatever they did was going to be, you know, because of how and what, who they were, but they didn't get it. They had never seen the Beatles. So they had no real idea of their impact. And so it was kind of like, Walk, wandering through the, the world trying to figure out what to do. Well, and this also brings up a point which Mark Lewison makes a lot in the first volume of his book, and McCartney also makes in the lyrics book, which we we're going to talk about just sort of briefly here. The whole motto from the very beginning was something's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciate George's point of view. What they do is going to be valid, and so let's just do it. So as I mentioned, the McCartney, the lyrics book came out. I know you haven't gotten your copy yet, but certainly you saw the photo, which has been going around on the internet. It's kind of sad that that is what makes the news is, uh, you know, the the fella at the newsstand with the headlines, the, the John Lennon shot dead headlines. I can't tell you the day that appeared, how many times I saw, this is Photoshop. This is fake. This is ridiculous. It's all fake. And then, of course, it's like, well, it, it's in his book. <laughs> the only thing that's fake about it is, no, that's not Paul. That's just someone who looks from the back a little bit like Paul. Paul was probably in the car with Linda, and they were at a stoplight. Yeah. We know what Paul was wearing on the day. He is His clothes were different than the fellow that's standing at the newsstand. It's certainly not one of linda's pristine pictures you know that she does so well it was clearly done on the fly in a car paul is really good in his storytelling paul mccartney in conversation with paul muldoon and all of us yeah one of the things i liked about the whole project is that paul has told some stories many times over the years about certain songs and that's understandable you know you can't expect him to make up a new story about how he wrote yesterday but we've all heard that story well in this collection they've picked songs way off the normal radar good songs but he has stories that you just never heard before or read well and it's as he says he's never kept a diary and so his way of keeping track of his own past is through the lyrics yeah that makes sense and they're only 154 how did you 
choose them? Was there a culling process? Well, you know, I mean, the truth about this was that I was, it was put to me that we could do a book about my lyrics. And I sort of said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I didn't really do an awful lot more uh, until Paul and I met up. And the idea then was that we would just talk to each other. And Paul would say to me, well, wait, what about this? Or what about that line? What did you think? And working with him as a poet, it was interesting for me because we were really analyzing the lyrics and where did it come from and stuff. And I think more things came out that way. Um, but really, my contribution was just to talk for five years to this man. <laughs> it is a diary in a way. In your own head, you know why you wrote something or when you wrote something or what the experience was. Um, I, what happened, a good thing that happened was it wasn't just all to do with the songs. We'd be talking about the lyrics and then something would spin off. And, you know, people and places that keep coming around. I mean, not just John and the other Beatles, you know, Linda and Nancy and Auntie Jen and, of course, his own parents. These are these touchstones that all of us live our lives around. You read these stories and it's like, yeah, you know, Paul is just another guy. Yeah. You know, and and I think it's become more accepted in a People are aware of the fact that Paul had a really good, solid family that supported him and and loved him. And in spite of the, the tragedy of his mother passing when he was young, you know, he has a lot of support. So he has a view of life that's realistic. And I think he's raised his children that way. Uh, amongst the comments in the forward, they have collated a million separate items, literally a million separate items of, of McCartney's history. <laughs> <That's>, wow. <laughs> Between the song lyrics and items of clothing and just sort of random Beatles stuff, that's something to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, that strikes me as being very much Paul's personality. The normal story is they just discarded this stuff willy-nilly and didn't really care. But I think McCartney really kind of did. He, he collected a lot of stuff. And he says that as well. You know, He says that until Linda came along, they really did just kind of throw things away into the waste bin once they were done with them. Original handwritten lyrics. Well, they don't know who they are. <laughs> And then the other thing is, you know, he's fortunate to have had really great photographers around him for his entire life. <laughs> so it's, it's not just these items, uh, these physical things. It's the photographs that people have taken of him and of the places and events that he's been in the middle of. Yeah, he has got to be the most photographed man in history. The queen might come close. Well, maybe, but she tends to be kind of private. You know, he goes out of projects and when he's been as you said you could chronicle his life just in photographs and lots of them small little note that's it take these broken wings and learn to fly when he's talking about Long and Winding Road, there are actually a couple of pictures on his Scottish farm of the road that he was thinking of. There is literally a long and winding dirt road on in Campbelltown. Right. And, and there it is. And it's like, oh, I can see how he got from there to there. Yeah. Things have to trigger songs some way. So. Well, and that's why I think it's it's slightly sad and slightly maudlin that the photo that went out was when John passed. But, I mean, that's part of life as well, I guess. Right. It's worth the money. It is printed much nicer than any $60 two-volume book should be. <laughs> it's not going to be falling apart anytime soon. Right. And then the, the, the both the photo reproductions and the text are exquisite we're getting really nice products from everybody i guess they figure we all have that money <laughs> well i mean you're not just that he he is delivering value for that money you're putting in yeah i'm not criticizing him he he usually does 
give you value for money. All right, so now we're going to go into CD3, get back the rehearsals and Apple Jams. All right. Now, most of this is Twickenham stuff. Or it's it's from the Nagras. It's it's about half and half, I'd say, between Twickenham and Apple Studio stuff. Right. The stuff from Twickenham, which didn't make it, you know, that didn't get brought forward into the Apple Studios. I've always been like, oh man, if they would have finished Susie Parker or Give Me Some Truth or you know, Paul played. Uh, a good portion of another day. I mean, there were songs kind of floating around. In, Backseat of my car was around. Yeah, yeah. Every night. I mean, there's there were songs floating around, and it just seemed to me like you develop what you have. And they just didn't take the time to develop those songs for that project. But I, I've always gone like, oh man, I wish I could. The Beatles playing another day. You know, that's that could be great. The first track is meant to be a counterpart to the first track on disc two. On the day shift now, George and Ringo coming in. This is very early. This is right at the start of the sessions. Right. And they were not you know, used to coming in early to play music. They did it one time in their career, but at that point, it was like showing up at 10 o'clock or more like 12 when, when Lennon rolled in. But it was uh, a new way of working for them. And they didn't seem real happy with it. <laughs> I mean, you even listen to, to them. They're putting on a good face, you know. Well. And, hello, hello, cameras. Right. They all had to travel in, and, and they had to go through the gates and go through security. And not fun for them. Nope. They didn't like it. You go back to Hard Day's Night. They were five years younger. They could stay out all night and roll into the studio's. having slept about two hours right so then it moves from there to actually an edit of several nagra versions of of all things must pass yes but it's not really presented like that i mean it's not like cut apart but it's also not really presented as a single performance yeah you can tell from the beginning of when they're working on it to the end when they kind of have a pretty good harmony thing going i mean Unless you believed it happened instantaneously, there was some work done. Oh, it's not, uh, you know, and if there's people joining in, you know, I'd appreciate it too. If Sunset doesn't last all evening. There's actually four different performances, but they are all between the 2nd and the 3rd of January. The thing that I feel about the, like the motion of it is uh, very, you know, bandy. Yeah. Uh, it's like that. I- I've always never really gotten George's comment that they wanted it to be a little bit like the band. But this version, I can kind of hear it. Yeah, I've read before that. That was what he was kind of looking towards, but he changes up the rhythm of the guitar. So it does sound more like the band. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You know, pieces of the version that are here sound kind of like the band. Yeah. And of course, Georgia just spent the last month or six weeks in Woodstock with the band and uh, Dylan. Right. Let's see. Music from big pink was out and then uh, Dylan was still working on his stuff. Correct. But I think some tapes were about, you know. George gave Ringo a copy of the basement tapes. Yeah. Or some version. I mean, I think the basement tapes has become a name for this kind of massive amount of stuff. And that wasn't all being passed around. It was more compact, you know, several songs. Yeah, a tape or two's worth of stuff. Yeah. Mighty Quinn and I shall be released. And incidentally, I got, finally got a chance to watch that band documentary uh, on Netflix. That's really well done. Yeah, I liked it a lot. George gets about two words in there. And it's like, well, you know, I would have thought coming from the Beatle perspective, it always seemed like 
what George did during that timeout in Woodstock was much more significant than they make it here in, in the documentary. Yeah, it is kind of weird because, you know, George himself made a point of it, you know, saying that, you know, he'd spent time there and was treated as an equal by everybody. And then you come back to the sessions at Twickenham and he felt like, yeah, it's the same old thing and I'm treated the same old way. Well, it's a big chunk of why he would come to refer to it as the winner of discontent. Exactly. So, yeah, it's weird that that being a big thing in Beetledom that they didn't talk about it a little bit. They don't even mention that Ringo was there in the last wall, so though Ringo is in the bit of video that they do show. Yeah, that's from true. The sh- from the show. And, and while less of a big deal, he is there, and, you know, anytime you get a Beetle doing anything, it should at least be noted well it's hard to miss him <laughs> so the next track is concentrate on the sound i'd like to say that i like the intimate idea rather than a large The chat on this disc is a little less enlightening, I think. This is kind of a bootleg, the official equivalent of a bootleg disc, and the chat makes it feel like that, where it's just, oh, well, here's some random bits of chat that we pulled from the Nagras. Right. I don't know. Somebody must have felt like it was a a reason to put it there, because they don't pepper this with a lot of talk for the next several songs. There's some, but not a lot. So then it moves on to one of John's rehearsals of Give Me Some Truth, although not the one that I like. Uh, you know, I, I like the, the short-haired Gary Cooper version. You know, <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe they would... didn't want that for them because they didn't want the name on there or, some, or something. It was all right. No, no, no freaked out. Yeah. Yellow belly son of Gary Cooper. Gonna... Yeah. No, not me. Selling me dope, for rope. Yeah, I think Paul was more involved in that particular version you're talking about. Oh, you can hear him do his stuff more. One one of the rehearsals, clearly, that was moving along, and they dropped it for whatever reason. Yeah. And again, you know, maybe John was thinking, I want to hold on to this. If he was already (laughs) thinking Plastic Ono Man, that's very much a song that could have fit there. Right. Again. Who knows what was talked about? You know, John was bringing more political stuff to the the group, and and George was he brought "Hear Me, Lord" and several things, and so they're really kind of putting in their personal views into the Beatles. Yeah, while Paul was playing "Cuddle Up, Baby." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, we're making great pop records. But the lead in there is kind of cool, you know. So you got a little bit of dialogue, then you got Paul playing this. Otherwise, mostly unknown original. Where's Harry songs? Or should we do uh, Hypocrites and write that bit? Do you know the other bits? Do we think that that was probably an early original, or do you think that's just Paul improvising something? I have read that he just tends a lot to just kind of play stuff. I mean, he walks around with a guitar often and just plays. And so maybe, maybe that just got caught. I'm not sure that it's structured enough to be an actual track. So, uh, and, and then a, just a little tiny bit of across the universe, right? Words are flowing <laughs> which has a similar chord. I mean, you know, you can see how it leads in. Sick and tired of those pieces do go together, and that was probably just 
oh, well, this is what I've got on my mind. Yeah, I agree. Let me move on to the, a rehearsal of I, Me, Mine, again from the Nagras. Yeah, and, and this is at a point where, you know, it it really kind of still has a domino sound, which is, you know, there was an old song called Domino, which was the waltz. Da, 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 and Paul sings it in one pass. You're gonna love this song, Domino, Domino. You're an angel that heaven has sent me. Domino, Domino. You're a devil designed to torment me when your heart must know that I love you so. Tell me why, tell me why. Why do you make me cry, Domino? And so instead of going into the rock part, it goes into this almost Spanish sounding uh, guitar part. This is the same version that's in the film where John Yoko were waltzing. Yeah. Certainly early take. It's not nearly done yet. I Me Mine was one of those songs that got dropped. I mean, they had to come back and record it in 1970. So this was one more song that actually wasn't part of the project. I mean, it had been rejected. It was only used because, oh, it, part of it's going to be in the film. Yeah, uh, although, you know, it might have gone somewhere else. It doesn't really sound like a single, though. <laughs> no. And it doesn't fit on Abbey Road, so I don't know where they would have put it. They were not in the habit of getting this far with recordings and just dropping them. Leave My Kitten Alone and 12-bar original and one after 909. That's about the only ones that I can think of that they actually took this many takes before they said, okay, we're, we're just going to leave it. So I don't think they would have just discarded it. Well, it wasn't part of anything, really. Yeah, that's true. I mean, no reason to go off into supposition land. This might have ended up somewhere or it might not have, but something will work out. And what worked out is, oh, we like this footage of John and Yoko waltzing. So Yeah, it made it in. But just the fact that it didn't make it to the John's mix, and he was not afraid of putting incomplete stuff. So it truly kind of was rejected at that point, I think. Yeah, this is true. But that's supposition. <laughs> <laughs> which, we're, which we're trying not to do. But <laughs> Then we move on to uh, January the 21st, 1969, and we move into really into the Abbey Road tracks. Paul has a piece where she came in through the bathroom window. Right. A completely different feel. Yeah, uh, although it still doesn't necessarily seem like he's going for a complete song. You know, I don't know if he had the medley in mind as something that we're going to do along the way or, or what the deal was, but it seems, even on the Nagras, it seems like he's just sort of writing half a song. Well, I think that's what you do. You know, you do write half a song. I mean, until you finished, it's not a complete song, but... And I don't think really that he had the idea of the medley. It's just when it came to doing some songs, they had a whole bunch of these kind of things, a half written bathroom window and a two verse polythene Pam. And so it really was stitching together what was around, which is kind of what John did in his composition. It's funny that he didn't really seem to care for the medley that much. John still seemed to be on the idea of who needs all of this production. Yeah. So in the first of what I'm sure we're going to have many instances of, Paul does talk about this in the lyrics book, and it's something that I've never heard before. And what's that? What he says is that as a kid, he used to see 
the days of the week in colors. Oh, yeah. Monday was black. <laughs> yes, back to school. Um, Tuesday was yellow. Wednesday's green. Thursday is kind of dark blue. Friday's red. Saturday's orange. And Sunday's white. And he recognizes that this is a form of synesthesia. Andy Partridge from XTC has that. He talks a lot about the songs he's written and how he came to it by that. It's just interesting. Paul has that. Well, has or had or, you know, I don't know if he continues or maybe that he's just gotten used to it. Right. Does he address that more in the book? Not so much. Welcome to Synesthesia the neurological phenomenon that couples two or more senses in 4% of the population. Synesthesia is a trait, like having blue eyes, rather than a disorder, because there's nothing wrong. In fact, all the extra hooks endow synesthetes with superior memories. The amazing thing is that a single nucleotide change in the sequence of one's DNA alters perception. In this way, synesthesia provides a path to understanding subjective differences, how two people can see the same thing differently. Not surprisingly, synesthesia is more common in artists who excel at making metaphors, like novelist Vladimir Nabokov, painter David Hockney, and composers Billy Joel and Lady Gaga. Once established in childhood, pairings remain fixed for life. You know, you're just inside your own little head, thinking, and, um, you know, you, you think stuff. So uh, one of those things for me, yeah, I always thought of the week in colors. So that's why the lines in this song, Sundays on the phone to Monday, are particularly resonant. He takes them personally. Right. And Lennon may have even had a touch of that. The, the idea of being able to see music, you know, all around you. I've never heard John actually say that, but it fits in real well with his, he didn't know whether he was a genius or whether he was insane as a kid. And, and he'd look into the mirror and he would just sort of dissolve into the mirror. Right. More supposition. I just think it was interesting that he uh, talked about that because i'd never heard that before that's what the lyrics book is kind of about yeah you know it's a lot like three two one and there's a, is a chance that he can tell some of these stories in a proper context right maybe i should go back and read many years from now i don't know <laughs> and then he goes on to tell the other origin of the story one time he literally left his bathroom window open and uh, a couple of scruffs found a ladder in the garage and, well, climbed into the bathroom and uh, stole some stuff. Yeah. A bunch of photos that Linda had taken. And apparently, according to that book on the Apple scruffs, they took several pairs of Paul's pants. The more personal stuff he did apparently get back. Yeah. Actually, they, they gave the pictures back, too. There were the real scruffs and then there were the... Uh, temporary scruffs and apparently the ones who did most of the uh, thievery not the clothes thievery but the personal items were some of the other ones apparently right and then in the book that's accompanied by both the photo of the ladder the window and paul climbing up the ladder to the window <laughs> and there's also a photo of them driving in through the gate another of linda's caught photos she turned around and took a photo of the the scruffs out behind the gate as it was closing <laughs> are these photos dated just generally 1969 ah cool so. well clearly santa claus that's <laughs> that's right time to hit up the wife <laughs> right <laughs> that always that question what do you want for christmas well hmm, i think i have an idea <laughs> so then we move on to the sixth track from the 24th of january so this is three days later than the she came in through the bathroom window performance uh, you get john doing polythene pam right okay. don't do it richie don't do it yeah i'll have whatever vegetables is on me for the day you know okay uh, Mal, so I'll just we'll have whatever the vegetables are. If they've got any uh, cheese sauce for the cauliflower. Well, let's have a mushroom omelet then. Well, you know, they seem to give us cauliflower yesterday. I'd like cheese sauce when they have cauliflower. It's slightly edited from what's on the Nagras. John was working on Polythene Pam for quite a while. 
the thing it dates back to India? Yes. And, you know, the idea of it has been traced back to in their early days, you know, of, of the group. He wrote it in India, but the, the inspiration, there's a couple of different stories about that. One of the cement mixers, the girls who went down to the cavern, uh, would apparently eat polythene, and they called her Polythene Pat. I've read that. That couldn't have been too good for her. And then the other one, the more salacious version, is apparently in 64, uh, John was hanging out with their old friend Royston Ellis. Yeah. And they went to uh, some, uh, well, adult party. <laughs> right. To be polite about it. One of the entertainers was a woman who was head to toe in... S- cellophane. Yeah, polythene. Cellophane, yeah. yeah. In, in polythene, and so... Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea of that seemed to have stuck with John. Okay, so both stories sound great. The dialogue, uh, again, nothing too special, but for whatever reason, that actually came from the end of the performance of Maggie May that's on disc two. It's like, well, why did you cut it and put it here? <laughs> Giles? Well, I have to say they have uh, obviously put stuff together so it's not really meant to be uh, necessarily correct. And I don't even know if they expected that close of a look at it. Well, most know? people don't care. But, I mean, <laughs> Giles knows what the Beatle people know. And maybe that's exactly why he did it. <laughs> okay, 99% of the people are not going to care, but you might. And so, And so I'm making this edit just because I feel like it. So this is just a... A sleuthing. He's just like, I'm going to leave little things for you to find. Well, you know, and, and again, that goes back to what we were talking about at, at the top. The way it's placed within disc two makes you think the, the two significant conversations were much earlier than they actually were. Right. Because I am not uh, a casual listener, I don't really know what the effect of that is. I mean, is this telling a narrative of anything? Or if you had just come to this, is the placement of certain pieces of dialogue meant to mean something? Or is it just, as you once suggested, it's just stuff, you know? It's, they put this little bit in. and So next, continuing on the Abbey Road theme, again from the Nagras, Octopus's Garden. Right. And, you know, they played bits of this in the original film. They played bits of one performance. This is from the 26th of January. Uh, Ringo actually goes at it for a little while. And again, uh, they Frankensteined it together a little bit. Right. Well, you know, in, in a, every other Beatle album, Ringo has a song. <laughs> and so, you know, this is going to be his song. They worked on it at Twickenham and they brought it into Abbey Road as well. A lot of the songs here, but this song in particular feels like a writing demo. <laughs> Keep it up. They ran out of time, I guess. I don't think they were actually going for this for Let It Be. I, I certainly couldn't see them playing Octopus's Garden live, although maybe. You know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, with the, the practical aspects of that, but I still think that it would have been completely what they did that Ringo would have a song on the album you know Octopus's Garden kind of takes the place of Yellow Submarine yeah as as a sort of you know vaguely kid-friendly song that the adults will will sing along to and it's kind of a country-ish song if he's not going to do Don't Pass Me By he, he can do this one yeah and since as you said it just sort of sounds like a, a writing session trying to move it forward it being so close to the end of the project, I think it, it just didn't happen. I like George really assisting Ringo, and, and that's the way those two work together throughout the 70s, really. Yeah. By the time they got to things like Photograph, they were a, a well-oiled team. Track eight is a jam of Oh Darling 
from the 27th of January, 1969. This feels much more like the 50s song that Paul always wanted it to be. When you told me, oh darling, when you told me, you didn't need me anymore. There's some of that on the version on Abbey Road, but I can also see why from this version, John said he should have given it to me. I would have sung it better. I think it's one of those songs that got smoothed and produced as it went along. You know, what we're hearing here is that kind of original inspiration for it. And then when they recorded it for Abbey Road, uh, it was them and George Martin. <laughs> Another thing we've discovered frequently through these tracks is John just likes to break into lyrics. <laughs> Whatever's on a piece of paper in front of me, I'm going to start singing. <laughs> and he makes it work. That's the amazing thing. You know, it works to the tune. <laughs> the genius of John Lennon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just uh, the Yoko's divorce has just gone through. Free at last. I'm free. And then Paul harmonizes with him, which is also kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, they just weren't getting along. There's a little bit less of John and Paul having fun on this disc, but here's a moment where they are really sort of enjoying themselves together. Yeah, I agree. Fun to listen to. We, we move off of the uh, Abbey Road stuff. We go on to take eight of uh, Get Back from the 27th of January, 1969. And the tape box for this is shown in the book on page 84. Nothing really too special about this, I don't think. I thought of, you know, George Martin's comment. The next take will be the one, you know, you're, you're right there. And so, you know, on this song, they're all playing the parts that they will eventually play. Uh, it's just not quite together. Oh, I think it's the same too, sir. I think it's the yeah. of it. Okay, man. Well, and it's good to hear George Martin. We don't get much of George Martin on this set. Not sure whether he was taking part in the overall project or maybe came in for certain tunes. He was certainly around most days when they were in Apple Studios. He had to look after the EMI equipment. Right. He's not going to hand the portable eight-track recorder over to Glenn Johns and say, here, have at it. Right. I'm dropping this off. I'll pick it up in a couple of weeks. He did a fair bit of the recording of the rooftop show. I don't understand quite how he lost his producing credit on this, you know, to Phil Spector. Or to Glenn Johns, for that matter. Right. I was losing control. I, my voice wasn't heard, and I got very dispirited indeed. Glenn Johns probably was producing by the strictest definition. We've been joking about all the instances where Glenn or Glennis comes up in here, but that just shows that he was the one who was actually not only pushing the buttons, but listening and answering the questions that a producer might be doing. He was doing something that was coming into the way people worked, but over at EMI, Abbey Road, the producer didn't mess with dials the engineer did and so glenn johns was mixing I mean, you know actually recording them and producing them i was working with glenn johns who was a very good engineer who's a producer now the 10th track on here is something that glenn johns did actually use in the very first version of get back it's the walk right which was a jimmy mccracken song this was on the first bootleg that i bought and this version that's on the box it's just like wow okay this actually sounds halfway decent they're jamming and don't get through it but uh, as a recording it sounds pretty good paul clearly only remembers the chorus yeah it's actually kind of a shame because i went back and listened to the original record that's a pretty soulful record and paul could have done a great version of that a 
apply his oh darling voice or his little Richard voice to this, that would have been really pretty neat. Well, you know, they were working on their songs. They never really did a real recording of the copy stuff they did. The covers were always just kind of joke covers for the most part. Right. Whatever it was that reminded them to play that particular song, piece of conversation, a riff. But they never said, we should record that. That's pretty good. We get about a minute of it here. The version uh, that Glenn Johns used was about four. The Glenn Johns version starts with, uh, you won't get me that way, which is uh, another one of those improvisations from Paul. And that we know right. is it's an improvisation. Yeah. So I heard it early on and liked it, but they didn't record it. Great. Here's a minute of it. I'm glad they give it to us. It's nothing significant. Yeah, they probably put it on because they knew it was on a bootleg at one point and people would be going, hey, where's the walk? Well, especially because Glenn Johns actually mixed it and used it, although this is not credited as a Glenn Johns mix. So Right. The next we get a Billy Preston song. And Billy didn't come to the fore all that much during the Get Back sessions. I, I guess it, uh, on the afternoon of the 28th, they just had some times. Well, it was Billy and John and Ringo. So clearly Paul and George were in a room fighting. It's your fault our records got so weird, you you traveling Newbury. <laughs> and Harrison is out of it. This is nice. It doesn't, I mean, it says with John and Ringo and, and they're kind of there. Yeah, it's mostly Billy, although you can hear Ringo's drums somewhat. Yeah, and somewhat being the relative word. The whole thing is just kind of, it's okay. I don't know if this was something that was coming out of John saying, well, do we want Billy to join the band? Because that also would have been floating in the air at that point in time. Maybe we should try and get Billy a number on Let It Be. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably why Paul's not there. <laughs> no, Billy is not going to be in the band. I like Billy's vocal and, I mean, his piano playing, as always. This is a song that had been around since the 30s. Clearly what this is, is this is a song Billy knows. And maybe John and Ringo know to some extent. I have no idea. But Billy is taking the lead on this, and they kind of go along. Yeah, there was a Supremes version of this song in uh, 1966. That may be the arrangement which Billy is trying to play. It was produced by uh, Holland and Dozier. It would have been something that he was at least familiar with. Or, I mean, you know, it could have been that Ray Charles was playing it live as well. That I don't know. Well, the fact that it's an old song, who knows? Track 12 is something that we've been long familiar with. The rehearsal of something. Right. This is when John is suggesting lyrics. This is the, the attracts me like a pomegranate yeah, version. Right. Now, later in the Niagara is not presented here is George going off on attracts me like a cauliflower. <laughs> Which actually makes some sense now, since we did hear George ordering lunch earlier on, on this disc. Yeah. But, you know, one way that's very common when you write, you kind of write in syllables. You know, it, it may not be even recognizable, but the sound of a vowel or something fits into the melody. And pomegranate just doesn't. But cauliflower is much more like No Other Lover. But you didn't mention cheese sauce in the lyrics. <laughs> so that was w why it was on George's mind. <laughs> it was part of his lunch order. That's kind of funny. Cause that, isn't that the criticism of Paul McCartney, that he just kind of writes about whatever's right in front of him? And George mentions that the song has been around for six months, which works timeline-wise with when uh, James Taylor would have first shown up in the Apple circles. Yeah. Mid to late White Album period. You know, we only get a couple minutes here, but what's on the Nagras is like a full half hour. You had a, a lesson on how to write a song. <laughs> you, well, I mean, you could probably teach a class based on that half hour. Yeah. I thought about the same thing with the tape I had of the evolution of Strawberry Fields from the very earliest demo. And there's lots of changing demos to the end. So you could teach class on that. So then we we go to Let It Be, which isn't necessary except it's historically significant. Take 28 from January 31st of 1969. 
the last day as it's described it's the last take of the last song of the last day for what became this project (laughs) right so this is the end of it we're not doing it again except when we come back in seven days and (laughs) well i may come back to it next year we'll have to ask phil specter who's not quite on the scene just yet (laughs) the chat the at the very end is new we've never actually had it anywhere so this is unique to the set Was all right, sound to me. It sounded wonderful, as good. The last two, sort of. The last one. I think it was for me too. Ah. I didn't get quite the words I had written here, though. That's all right. <laughs> Has it been tacked on, or is it? Uh. uh I think it's from a little bit later on the tape, but I I do think it's in the right position. I see. So after it, there's like some BS, 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 and then here's the thing. Yeah, exactly. And as we would expect, Paul did tell us about Let It Be in the lyrics book. I didn't realize that Let It Be is a line from Hamlet. No, I didn't realize that either. Is it him? Well, what I'd say about that is that your unconscious knew about it. And since, since so much of this derives from the unconscious. So what he says is that the lyrics were probably inspired by a bit of Hamlet. There's a line in there, oh, I could tell you, but let it be, Horatio, I am dead. Well, huh. What Paul says is that they did make them memorize bits and pieces of Shakespeare when he was in school. Right. Now, he doesn't say that it actually came to mind when he was writing Let It Be, but he says subconsciously he thinks it might well have been. Huh. Well, who am I to argue with him? Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, this is the kind of thing you get out of the lyrics book. Yeah, interesting. Then he goes on. Before he tells the standard tale, the, you know, I dreamed it, my mother came to me. Me and the band, we were all going through times of trouble, as the song goes, and there just didn't seem to be any way out of this mess. I fell asleep exhausted one night, and then then into Mary's story and how he was comforted by being visited by, uh, you know, his late mother. Right. Then he goes off and talks about the infamous Live Aid performance of Let It Be. Where it cuts out? Apparently Sting had told them that Let It Be was not a good song to sing at Live Aid. So he goes on to say that we didn't get to play Let It Be live as the Beatles, but it did inform the direction of the Let It Be album. Since the Beatles never played the song at a show, the performance at Live Aid was, for many people, probably the first time they saw it sung on stage, which isn't true. But he, he played it once before. He played it the whole 79 tour. The version that we're familiar with is from Campuchia. Yeah, I'll do that one. Which is just a slightly edited down version of his 79 set. It's funny to hear him say, you know, that it kind of informed the project. Because, you know, that really is part of the myth of that album. Because that song is so melancholy, in a way, you know, sad, that people would definitely get the impression that, Wow, is a slog. Well, but the piece that doesn't fit his little ad-libbed version before While My Guitar Gently Weeps on the White Album box. He had the first couple lines, you know, when I find myself in times of trouble, and at that point it was Brother Malcolm. But the public didn't know anything about that. Of course, but in terms of the story, it's like, well, okay. The interesting thing about the Nagras and one of the really cool things is you you get to try to both let it be and get back to a lesser extent long and windy road, but that too, all the way from the beginning to the finished product. I mean, especially now that we do have this little snippet from the White Album sessions. Yeah. You can really see just the very beginnings of Paul thinking about it. And, and then by the time they start into January of 69, he's put things together into a song. Yeah, I don't remember what the timeline, I mean... When they recorded that bit, uh, let it be at the White Album, was that? Uh, it was part of the the Guitar Gently Weep session. So I mean, we're talking about like October, uh, all, no September, uh, September. Yeah, 
the pressures at that point were well they were different pressures they were apple pressures the whole thing about the white album is that brian was gone and klein wasn't there yet so they were the ones who were running the business right and john was off the rails (laughs) with his behavior with yoko not for real but that was the view that he you know he was now kind of weird One thing which we didn't mention, which which I wanted to bring up, so we, we did actually go into the Nagras and look for that uh, the clip about uh, Paul and moaning, and the full-length clip ends with Paul talking about uh, John going off and being in a black bag in a couple months. Right. And as you pointed out, that hadn't happened yet. That was two months later, so clearly it was part of the conversation going on, you know, those plans were were being discussed all these pieces the jigsaw puzzle still doesn't quite fit together yeah i'm pretty sure when you know all the the get back stuff is released we're just going to have to rewrite the bible (laughs) what we know and understand i think is going to change a lot of january 1969 makes sense or at least some sense but i think there's just a lot of pieces that we don't no, we might think that we've got we got a little bit of, of of sky here, and it's oh well. There's there's birds in this picture in in these four pieces of sky. Yeah. To close off, let it be. Paul says in the lyrics book, you know, in the end, this song becomes a prayer or a many prayer. There's a yearning somewhere in its heart, and the word amen. Well, that means so be it, which is let it be. You know, very eloquent, not just sort of throwing off what he was thinking about the song. He actually put some thought into what these words were and what he's saying. And of course, Muldoon certainly helps, you know, having a honest to goodness professional writer shaping your words. Yeah. The new takes on some things, you know, I just don't know whether what's happening is just kind of a reshaping of your memory or how much of it is real or how much of you thought about since then you being paul i guess but you know i think he has also looked into the psychology of what he's written he's very definitely concerning himself with his legacy at this point yeah you know he wants to put down a definitive statement on his life and his work and that's what the lyrics book is and that's what 321 is and and to a certain extent that's what all of these Beatles boxes are about. I think the Beatles boxes have you know a natural market and people interested in it. The way, as you mentioned, that McCartney is looking after his legacy is kind of separate from that. So far, he's done a very good job, I think. Certainly better than we might have expected, and, and better than, of course, there is nobody of comparable stature. Yeah, you know, he's just, he's very unique. The songwriter and a great performer. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> it took three people in the 40s to be what Paul McCartney was. Absolutely. And in large respect, he's a great arranger, a great producer. Uh, you can take all sorts of aspects from his career and just go, and look how good he was at that. All right. Well, let's see. We're... We're still a week away from Thanksgiving, so we'll be getting to get back just as soon as we possibly can, but we'll come up with something for next week. Yeah, yeah, we're we're definitely going to watch it and comment on it. <laughs> All right, so we'll be back next week. All right, take care. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme 
was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. I don't want to just do something that gives someone to put someone on a shelf. Does that make sense? So, and all the people that go, oh, how come you didn't put, you know, there's a great snippet. And you just go, well, you've got it anyway. You own it anyway. You've got the bootleg. It's like, it's like you know, this isn't, this is, I'm worried about my kids going, I've never heard the Beatles and putting on one of these tracks and going, God, they weren't very good, yeah. were they? to a certain degree because it's kind of not for the, the generation that that want this stuff it's yeah, listen I, I, the Beatles fans are, are the most amazing fans in the world however what really intrigues me is people going wow this band are great you know my kids now listen to things on Spotify or or, or on Apple or whatever and now I'm in the car with my daughter going to take her to school and she's like playing me you know Billie Eilish followed by The Chain by Fleetwood Mac you know, followed by Here Comes the Sun. It's like there's no there's no rules in what they listen to. Followed by Eminem. It's like, you know, and so <laughs> if if maybe a, a an outtake of Maggie May came on, she might go, I don't really like the Beatles. <laughs> really valid points. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.